Sometimes it seems we are more divided than ever before, unable to speak across the differences we must engage to create the world we want for ourselves and our children. On Being's Better Conversations Guide is a free resource and reflection for beginning this adventure, creating new spaces for listening, conversation, and relationship. Because the point of speaking together differently is to learn to live together differently. Go to civilconversationsproject.org and find the Better Conversations Guide in the Resources tab. Again, that's civilconversationsproject.org. On Being is brought to you by the John Templeton Foundation. The Templeton Foundation supports academic research and civil dialogue on the deepest, most perplexing questions facing humankind. Who are we? Why are we here? And where are we going? To learn more, please visit templeton.org. The Templeton Foundation. Stay curious. We have these categories, work, life, and we have brains, brawn, you know, so on, all the different distinctions that we make. We make them mindfully, and then we start to use them mindlessly, forgetting that when we're at work, we're people. We have the same needs we had when we were on vacation. And you should get to the point where you're treating yourself whether you're at work or at play in basically the same way. Ellen Langer is a social psychologist who some have dubbed the mother of mindfulness. But she defines mindfulness with counterintuitive simplicity, the simple act of actively noticing things, with a result of increased health, competence, and happiness. Her take on mindfulness has never involved contemplation or meditation or yoga. It comes straight out of her provocative, unconventional studies, which have been suggesting for decades what neuroscience is pointing at now. Our experience of everything is formed by the words and ideas we attach to them. What makes a vacation a vacation is not only a change of scenery, but the fact that we let go of the mindless, everyday illusion that we are in control. Ellen Langer has shown it's possible to become physiologically younger through a changed frame of mind, to find joy in what was experienced as drudgery by renaming it as play, and to induce weight loss by substituting the label exercise for labor. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Ellen Langer is a professor of psychology at Harvard University. I spoke with her in 2014. I do always start my interviews by asking, uh, was there a a religious or spiritual or philosophical background to your childhood that had anything to do with what you now describe as mindfulness? I mean, was that there? No. No, No, not at all. Nothing at all. My parents were wonderfully supportive. Yeah. And uh, my mother was so supportive, she would have had me laminated if she could have. Uh, I'm always (laughs) bragging about me. And I think it was um, because they were so supportive that I had the strength, courage, whatever, without feeling it that way to ask questions and to be out in the world the way many others might have been inhibited. Mm -hmm. Also, people were constantly saying to me, uh, why are you smiling? And so I was aware very early on that most of the people um, that I was meeting in all different environments were less than happy. So one of the things you've said is that most of us live mindlessly virtually all of the time. And yes. you say that with a smile on your face, but you mean it. Yes. And so- <laughs> oh, I mean it. <laughs> and I, I find that um, I'm not infrequently, not frequently, but not infrequently, I too am mindless. Right, right. As I'm fond of saying, whatever you're doing, you're doing it either mindfully or mindlessly. Mm-hmm. And the consequences of being in one state of mind or the other are enormous. So in study after study, we plug in, you know, we, we manipulate uh, this mindfulness and uh, change the measures from study to study. And almost no matter what we put in, that when we encourage people to be more mindful, we find enormous improvements. And so, well, so, okay, so let me ask you the question this way. Um, I'm just wondering, did you ever investigate this mindfulness the way Buddhism talked about it, or did you, have you always just explored it, no, se- it yeah, separately? Well, actually, in the early 70s, um, I was studying mindlessness. 
Okay. Okay. Um, and then, you know, and, and found and continue to find that oh, mindlessness so is pervasive. Yeah. Most people are just not there and they're not there to know that they're not there. Oh. And when I um, address the difference between mindlessness and mindfulness, so since my mindlessness was leading in my thinking, there was no reason for me to, um, to appeal to anything Eastern. This was all a Western scientific notion that right. I was developing it. So interesting. And so mindfulness for me is the very simple process of actively noticing new things. When you actively notice new things, that puts you in the present, makes you sensitive to context. As you're noticing new things, it's engaging and turns out, after a lot of research, that we find that it's literally, not just figuratively, enlivening. So um, the Eastern notions, I did research, again, back in the 80s on transcendental meditation. And that's also, meditation is also useful, but it's, it's quite different, different ways of getting to the same place. Meditation, no matter what kind of meditation, is engaged to produce post-meditative mindfulness. Right, right. Okay, and um, the mindfulness as uh, I and my a mean, It's a means to an end, and you're going exactly, straight to the exactly. end. Mm-hmm. And, exactly. So for us, you know, you're noticing new things, you're there. And I, I think that over the last 10, maybe even 20 years, that if you look at all of the um, different forms of treatments to become more mindful, this means to the same end, that they have become more and more like what we've been studying from the beginning. Meditation that used to be required 20 minutes twice a day is slowly changing. (laughs) But I find that what lots of these people do, and it's also part of folk psychology where you tell people, um, you know, be there, be in the moment. When you're not in the moment, you're not there to know you're not there. So it's really an empty instruction. Well, and so, I think, you uh, know, some of the language you use that's just slightly different, uh, that's slightly original over against... The slightly original, excuse well, me. <laughs> no, very, very deeply original. But I mean, okay. I mean original, it's nuanced in a way. It's su- yes. subtly different. So to talk about presence, I mean, it's not that you never use the term presence, but you more often use the term noticing yeah, noticing. Well, because you can... Noticing I, I new don't things, think yeah. you can make a decision that I'm going to be present. What does that mean? You know, so that the people who um, are, tell you to meditate, there's an assumption that over time that will put you in the present. But if you're actively noticing things, so you're going to go home tonight and if you live with somebody, notice five new things about that person. It's very. It can be very specific, and what will happen is the person will start to come alive for you again, mm-hmm. and that facilitates the relationship. You also describe in a very illuminating way how um, how this begins or early, early in our lives. That the unconditional way we learn in childhood, we pick up rules before we have a chance to question them. Yes, we're given rules and facts and names for everything. Right. And, you know, so we're led to believe that there's a single way of viewing things. Mm -hmm. But then at some point, somebody tells us that there are other people that might have a different view. So we sort of acknowledge that. You know, if you say to somebody, is there more than, is there only one way of looking at things? Everybody will say there are many ways. But then they go through their lives looking at it from a single perspective. Uh, We really, we're afraid of uncertainty. And what I say in response to that is that we need to distinguish between what I call universal uncertainty and personal uncertainty. So personal uncertainty is, I don't know, I know I don't know, maybe you know, therefore I have to fake it in some way or feel bad about knowing (laughs) it or whatever. Universal uncertainty is an awareness, I don't know, you don't know, in some sense we really can't know. And that then the interaction proceeds differently. And so in a, in a personal context, when you do something that seems to me to be not right in some way, hurtful, you know, whatever, that if I'm operating within this absolute framework, this mindless framework, I then draw all sorts of negative attributions about you. I expect that you're this kind of person. I then label you that way, respond to you in the future that way, and it's almost impossible for you to break away from that. In this other way of viewing the world where you really understand that you come to understand that people's behavior makes sense from their perspective or else they wouldn't have done it. 
Because so you're not clinging when, so tightly exactly. and in an unreflected way to what you think order and stability are about and what you think happened, as though that's exactly. the only reality. Exactly. Yeah, and so then, then you come to see, I mean, if you just ask yourself, what sense does that behavior make? So you might see me as gullible, um, but in fact, what I am is trusting. Mm-hmm. Um, I might see somebody else as, somebody might see somebody as rigid, but what they are is stable. And when you do this, you can sort of imagine how all sorts of interpersonal conflict falls by the uh, wayside, right? That all of the reasons you're, you're fighting with this person or you dislike this person, whether it's at home or at work, now you might have disliked them because they were so damn impulsive. But now you see they're spontaneous. And so if it's the case that now I see that the things that are happening to me are a function of my view of them, I needn't be so afraid. So then I stand tall and I can go out in the world and all sorts of good things are going to happen and, you know, each part, again, reinforcing the other. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being, today with social psychologist Ellen Langer. In one of her most famous studies, she found that it was possible to lower obesity and diabetes in chambermaids who spent their entire days in motion by essentially helping them name their everyday activity not as work, but as exercise. And her book, Counterclockwise, tells the story of her experiment to demonstrably turn the clock back on age with a group of men in their 70s and 80s. You do, I think, quite often work with um, organizations, businesses, yes. and you, you sometimes give very practical kind of uh, exercises, um, thought experiments to people to put them into this mode. Right. And one of the things that um, I've recently spent some time with and have uh, started to write about uh, with respect to business is what I think is started off as a good idea where people would say you must have work-life balance. Right. And work-life balance is certainly better than work-life imbalance. (laughs) But I think that uh, the concept is basically mindless. And the reason for that is that we have these categories, work, life, and we have um, brains, brawn, you know, so on, all the different distinctions that we make. We make them mindfully and then we start to use them mindlessly, huh. forgetting huh. that when we're at work, we're people. We have the same needs we had when we were on vacation, that when we're talking to people, the people we're talking to also have the same needs and so on. And I can elaborate on this in a moment. But the, the idea, I think, to replace work-life balance, which treats these categories as independent, is work-life integration. And you should get to the point where uh, you're treating yourself, whether you're at work or at play, in basically the same way. Hmm. Have you studied um, how this kind of change in the experience through just the language you're applying, whether it's work or play? Yeah, we did a few studies uh, where we had people do things where they were given the label, either work or play. So, and, and in this particular study, it was interesting because what we had people do was to read and um, evaluate cartoons, jokes. So you would think that that content would have been fun. Right. Um, when they were doing it under the aegis of work, what happened is their minds wandered, um, they didn't enjoy it. One of the ways we knew that was when we asked them how much they would need to be paid in order to do more of this, for example. They needed a lot more you know, than the other group who was just playing. <laughs> in right. some environments, it's difficult because you don't want to be joking you know, uh, when you're talking to this person if they have a lot of power over you. But you want yourself never to take yourself too seriously and to know that whatever you're doing can be done in many different ways. Um, you also did this fascinating study with chambermaids who, if you looked objectively at the work they were doing, they were moving all day long, right? They were, right. by any definition, exercising, but they thought right. of it as work. 
And right. then it was also this example, wasn't it, where you changed the language and it actually had these incredible physiological effects. Yeah. Um, it's interesting that you're pointing this out. I was just talking to one of my graduate students right before coming to the station about several other studies that we're doing on language. And it's it probably runs through my whole career where mm-hmm. you change a word or two here or there and you get vastly different um, effects. The chambermaid study was part of a series that I had begun back, I guess, Started the research in 79, I remember, because we published it in 81, and that was first reported in the, you know, in this mindfulness book. That was the um, retreat study where I took old men to a timeless retreat that had been retrofitted to 20 years earlier um, <laughs> and had them live there as if it was the present, speaking in the present tense and so on. And but as though I they can, were 20 years younger. Right, exactly. Yeah. And the effects from that study were phenomenal, basically because these were really old people. You know, these people were in their mid to late 80s, but that's when 80 was 80, not the new 60. Yeah. And this was a long time ago. But So the, what drove that study was the same thing that drove the chambermaid study, and I can talk more about either one, mm-hmm. but it's this call it the mind-body unity theory. So it occurred to me that mind and body are just words and that... You you have a question? No, no, I was just... <laughs> no, you, I'm just, just you have I'm, a breath? <laughs> I'm, I'm breathing appreciatively, yeah. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and so... It could have been mind, body, and elbow, and then we would have had a different conception of people. <laughs> and so it seemed to me that if, at least for heuristic purposes, just to see how far we could push this, if we say that mind and body are one, we're no longer asking questions like, how do you get from the mind to the body? Even though the medical world not that long ago, actually, um, in the medical model, believe that the only thing that's going to affect the body as far as disease is concerned is the introduction of a pathogen, and that psychology mattered very little. Right. Uh, and now, you know, that's changed. But my view is more extreme than the way the medical world and some of the medical world and other psychologists studying this belief, because they're still looking for the way the mind influences the body. But if we put them back together, then it's one, and the question doesn't make the same amount of sense. So what we do is we say, let's treat the mind and body as one. If we do that, we put this thing in a context, both the mind and the body are in that same context. So the first test of this was this uh, study with elderly men where we're going to put their mind at an earlier time. And as a result of uh, living in that environment, in this retreat we had set up for a week, their hearing improved, their vision improved, uh, their memory improved, their strength improved. At the end of this, uh, they were evaluated by people who knew nothing about the study as looking significantly younger than in comparison groups. So they, they, their minds pretended that they were 20 years younger and well, they we're hoping started that, yeah. to seem 20 years younger. Yeah, exactly. You know, but it's, it's not just, you know, when, when we talk about pretending, right, or placebo, we have to be right. careful yeah. because, you know, sometimes when you're pretending, you're aware you're pretending. Yeah. And so your mind is, you know, is in one place and that's where your body is going to be, not in that new state. But if you fully get into it. Yeah. So, friends, one of the things that I would expect, and I probably should do this at some point, is if you take actors that are playing the part of somebody very different from themselves and they're good actors, that if we took all the physiological measures, we would find they were the measures were more like the person, hmm. the role they were playing than the person him or herself. This counterclockwise study... And that was the, uh, was, the men, the, the age Right, the, the people going back to the retreat, yeah. was then part of a, uh, the basis of a series that the BBC put together. Uh, so the study was replicated in England, and more recently, 
in uh, South Korea and the Netherlands. And that, that feels good because those are such different cultures, um, yet it seems to, um, to work the same way. Well, and I, so, yes, and I think what should also be pretty remarkable for you is, I mean, you were doing this study, what did you say, 19... 19- Seventy nine was when we started right, it. But and then we, you know, you made this this off the cuff remark a minute ago about how this is when eighty was eighty and not the new sixty. And the fact is that now, thirty years on from when you started doing this study, yes. we have had this cultural transformation in our imagination about what it means to be forty or fifty or sixty or eighty. And right. literally, I mean, I feel like in the last ten years. You know, 60 is not what 60 was. 50 is not right. what 50 was. It's, it's amazing. Yeah, and I think so, too. I mean, I'm not about to study the fact that, although I do find that amazing. No, but I mean, I'm saying that there's actually, that the, the culture, culture has is, borne out um, the question you were asking. Um, yes, yeah. If we change our minds about it, would the body change as well? Yeah, and um, that um, if you just look at the activities that people are willing to engage right now, yeah. I think yoga is wonderful. I think running is wonderful. I think that anything that somebody takes on to um, improve themselves that uh, without suffering if they're not doing it well enough or what have you is good. I think that there's a component of it that's not at all dissimilar from um, everything, this mind-body unity idea. Once I decide uh, that I'm going to start running because when I run, I'm going to be healthy, now I'm believing I'm being healthy, and that should translate into greater health. What I'm saying is (laughs) many of these practices have a large placebo effect, and that the placebo itself... Uh, can be explained by this theory. You know, you had—this I found so interesting when I started to think about it, that here you have this wonderful, wonderful drug, placebo, um, that because of the way it was studied in the medical world, it was—you know, anybody who was trying to assess the efficacy of a drug was upset when it didn't outperform the placebo. Right. You know, that, um, however, that placebo is curing a lot of people. So it's, it's a very, very powerful medication. Yeah. And so my work has been devoted to try to find a way over time in all these different studies to return that control over our health back to ourselves. Right. I think, I think uh, it was a conversation I had with Esther Sternberg, who's an immunologist, about how, I mm-hmm. mean, all the placebo is doing is, is unlocking your brain's own pharmacy. But for some right. reason, we've never thought of placebo that way. You're right. We've thought of it as still this thing that doctors give that is illusory. Yeah, not just illusory, that it was a bad thing. Yeah. You know, that if people early on, I don't think this would be the case now, but if people were told, and there's evidence for this actually, if people are told that the pill they took is a placebo, it doesn't work. Yeah, right. You know, um, and then it I doesn't think, work, right? If they know exactly, that. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. You can listen again and share this conversation with Ellen Langer through our website, onbeing.org. I'm Krista Tippett. On Being continues in a moment. Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, a conversation with social psychologist Ellen Langer. Her unconventional, creative portfolio of studies have long suggested what neuroscience is now pointing at, that our experiences of everything are formed by the words and ideas we attach to them. Ellen Langer was one of the earliest pioneers in drawing a connection between mindlessness and unhappiness and between mindfulness and health, along with figures like John Kabat-Zinn and Herbert Benson. Distinctively, though, her approach does not in the first instance incorporate any technique like meditation or breathing or yoga. I want to move on and talk to you about—you said something really intriguing a minute when we started about 
believing that we are at an evolution in consciousness. Um, mm-hmm. You know, that mindfulness has emerged full-blown as a, as a word suddenly that everyone in America knows. Yeah. And I, I really enjoyed a, a blog post you wrote. I think it was a blog post you wrote about, uh, I think this was when Ariane Huffington was first talking about the third metric, maybe before the book was yeah. published, <laughs> right? And you went and you said, you said oh, and uh, it sounds <laughs> like, a, a, a you know, Katie Cork was there and Dr. Mark Hyman was there, who's now well-known yeah. as uh, Clinton's physician. And, and they were all asking questions and batting this around. And you felt, you said, I felt like saying, maybe shouting, yes, yes, I couldn't agree more since I've been studying this since the <laughs> 1970s and making yeah. all the recommendations that were being presented as new. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I had an ego moment. <laughs> um, it, it's funny because when I was at that conference... I was oblivious to what was going to be going on. You know, oh, before you went. <laughs> you know, that, yeah. Well, I knew the people that were going. I didn't know everybody was going to be talking about mindfulness. Mm-hmm. And that and mindfulness so, increases health, competence, and happiness. Yeah, which I mean, been, so it was just a yeah. very, it was, um, but anyway, so that was not one of my better moments. <laughs> but, but say but some more again, about uh, this notion what? of evolution of consciousness. I mean, really, what, well, you know, flesh that out. What do you mean when you say that? It's a big, it's a big statement. Yeah, it's a big statement, and you know maybe it's um, it's too big for what I mean by it. Um, it's really just reflecting on what you said a moment before that you know twenty years ago, or you know let's go back to um, the seventies, uh, early seventies when I started this work, nobody was thinking in these terms. There mm-hmm. were you know monks out in um, yeah. in Asia meditating and a few you know people here or there but it really wasn't part of the culture and now as you've said it's very much a part where people have the expectation that they're supposed to live right whatever that means they're supposed to take care of their bodies mm-hmm. and i think that you know one can pursue yoga mindlessly. One can even pursue meditation mindlessly. Right. And again, I mean, I just want to, I just want to name this. I mean, you actually are not studying or talking about meditating necessarily no. or doing yoga or, um, you know, being mindful as a practice. Again, I mean, your definition is all that's necessary right. is to seek out, create, and notice new things. Right. Yeah, no, it's, um, I'm not disparaging any no, of no, the, right. the other approaches, but it is quite different. And, and, you know, if you thought about how to put it in place, that it's really much simpler than getting people to meditate. Um, and the two are not mutually exclusive at all. One right. can do both. Yeah. But if I were to, you know, to consider meditation versus this direct mindfulness as I study it, I would say that um, for those people who think, and and some people do, that unless they do something drastic, their life circumstances aren't going to change. Well, so if somebody's living in the West, oftentimes it's taking up a practice like meditation or yoga. Mm -hmm. You change your life in some big way, and then you have the belief, which has a placebo part of it, but it is wonderful to lead to all sorts of other big changes in your life. Um, For other people mindlessly as well on the other side perhaps that they get scared about things that are just too foreign and so this whole idea of doing what these monks do doesn't feel right I think that one should be doing both um, but it's good that we have so many people now from the the two different um, approaches I was going to say camps but then that sounds sort of warring <laughs> yeah. which which is not the case yeah. uh, doing this to enlist more and more people into this way of being you know this is something from believe from your mindfulness your book mindfulness um, you talked about doing a sabbatical at Harvard Business School and that um, the students or faculty there um, helped you kind of distill your, your, how you apply this to business into two sentences. I, just, I thought they were really helpful. Mindlessness is the application of yesterday's business solutions to today's problems. Yeah, no, they didn't come up with that. Oh, they, did, they didn't? <laughs> no. <laughs> but they helped, you, they helped you formulate these sentences, right? Or you said okay, yeah, you formulated sure. them yeah. there in that context. And mindfulness is attunement to today's demands to avoid tomorrow's difficulties. Yeah. Did I say that? Yes, no, I did. Um, and, and yes, I'm sure that, you know, that uh, uh, spending the, a semester over there, I was teaching a course to their junior faculty, 
And uh, it was interesting because they approach problems so differently. And the problem, again, as you, as you said, that uh, businesses are typically applying um, yesterday's uh, solutions to today's problems. And I think that in this search for the solution, they, in this mindless search, they tend to miss what's often right in front of them. When I give talks in businesses and I'm trying to get people first to appreciate how mindless they are, what I do is I, I give them many examples. Um, for, for example, even a simple thing like I might ask, how much is one in one? And I know there are people that are listening to this. They're saying to themselves, oh, God. Are we going to have to listen to a whole hour of this, you know, thinking that, oh, anyway. And, you know, so then they obligingly say two, and then, then I inform them that no, one in one is sometimes two. It's not always two. And I give them different examples. The, the easiest one to understand is if you take one wad of chewing gum and you add it to one wad of chewing gum, right. you get one. Right. Um, and so it is with each of the things. So I think that you have a belief, and then you seek out a confirmation for it. And so the more mindful approach would be to ask the question in both ways. How is it this way, and how is it not this way? We talk a lot about stress when um, both in my lab and then in uh, business contexts. Um, that for anybody, when they're stressed, there's an assumption that they're making that something is going to happen, number one, and that when it happens, it's going to be awful. Yeah. Both of those are mindless. You want to open it up both ways. First, the belief that it's going to happen, all you need to do is ask yourself for evidence that it's not going to happen. And you always find evidence for whatever you ask yourself. Okay. okay, so All you right. have, you know, I'm going to be fired. Yeah. Maybe it'll happen, maybe it won't, and when it happens, it'll have good parts and bad parts, and it's just much easier to go forward then. They have a one-liner with that, you know, sort of no worry, no worry before it's time. Right, yeah. I, I remember um, Eckhart Tolle saying um, that stress is all about not wanting whatever is happening to be happening, that that is the stress, which is another way of describing what you're talking about. Um, yeah, it's interesting. I think it's more not about what's happening, but it's, it's about the presumption of something that's going to happen. What I'm saying mm -hmm. is that I think stress f follows from the belief that this future event will happen. When you're in the middle of the event, you're dealing with it one way or the right. other. You're, you know, right. But, um, yeah, I think that uh, it goes back in some sense to Epictetus, who said, not in English and not with my accent, but that <laughs> events don't cause stress. What causes stress are the views you take of events. Yeah. And once people can appreciate, you see, right now, almost everybody is mindlessly driven by these absolutes. And part of these absolutes are these evaluations of good or bad. If it's good, I feel I must have it. If it's bad, I must avoid it. Hmm. When it's neither good nor bad, I can just stay put hmm. and just be. Hmm. So we get a lot more control by recognizing the way we're controlling our present and our future. Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today with social psychologist Ellen Langer, who some have dubbed the mother of mindfulness. She was a pioneer in the science of revealing immediate life benefits of mindfulness, which she describes as the simple act of actively noticing things achieved without meditation. You write in an interesting way about, about time and how our, our perception of time itself it, it, it plays into this. Yeah. Well, just to underscore this, that my belief is that our beliefs are not inconsequential. It's not that they matter a little, that they're almost the only thing that does matter. Mm -hmm. It's a very extreme statement. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that if you were going to say what matters, real or perceived time, to me, it would be perceived time. Right. So let's say we have you in the study. Um, you go to sleep. You wake up and you see the clock. And the clock 
for half of the people is running twice as fast as normal. I'm not for half the people, for um, a third of the people. For a half, the clock is slowed down. For um, the last third, it's accurate. So what that means is that upon waking, a third of the people will think they got, let's say, two hours more sleep than they got, two hours fewer sleep than hmm. they got, or the amount of sleep that they actually got. And the question is, when you're then given biological and cognitive psychological tasks, do these tasks reflect real or perceived time? And clearly, I believe that, you know, when you wake up in the morning and you think that you had a good night's sleep, you're ready to go regardless of how much sleep you actually had. You know, up until a point, of course. Mm -hmm. I think that's, you know, somehow our perception of time, especially, you know, in this moment where the pace of technological change seems to be so fast. Um, yeah. It really plays into a lot of stress, whether it's how we think about multitasking or procrastinating, right? All these things are involved right, with right. our relationship to time and deadlines. And Yeah, I think um, one of the things that we might do uh, when we're so worried about what's going to happen in the future is to think about all the times we worried in the past and the thing didn't happen. Right. Well, well, okay. So I'd really, I want to ask you, um, what did you say a minute ago? The, the way you do this, this direct mindfulness, right? This is what mm-hmm. you study. This is what you preach in your way. And so, so just take us through, like, what is this application of direct mindfulness and all these things you learn look like in a, you know, a day in the life I think that uh, what happens is that I'm not afraid of uh, very many things out there because um, I'll be able to handle it. I'm not going to give up today worrying about tomorrow. And that's that. I don't want to get into an argument with economists, which I could about you know putting money away for the future and so on. It's this is a, a, at a different level of analysis. Okay. But that much of the worrying, almost all the worrying we engage in, is about something about tomorrow when we can't predict what tomorrow is going to be like. But you say you know you you say and write again and again that this is easy, um, but it doesn't sound easy, right? It. Is, and is it something, does it get easier with time? Is it something yeah, that you've yeah. learned? Yeah. And, um, I think um, it's not easy to, you know, we do this for five minutes and then, uh, you know, with respect to one kind of content and then your whole life is going to change, although that could happen. Um, but, you know, the, the practice, I said to you, you know, just Go home or, you know, call somebody on the phone or uh, when we stop now, go see somebody in the next room and notice new things about them. Mm -hmm. And this person that you thought you knew will, you know, will feel different. And that person will respond to you differently. And this happens instantly. Mm -hmm. You know, that if you are doing something that is difficult and you say to yourself, what am I so worried about? Um, what are the positive things that could happen by my not completing this? Or how can I make this into a game? Um, mm-hmm. You know, that um, why is it that I think my life depends on whatever this thing is? Because very rarely does our life depend on, on any particular action. But, Do you know what I'm saying? It's, yeah, you know, that and, people and, live a life that is ongoing, but treat it as if whatever's happening at the moment is the last opportunity they're going to have. Right, right. So, you know, it's very striking that the American Psychological Association has said of your work that it has offered new hope to millions whose problems were previously seen as unalterable and inevitable. Will will therapy, you know, 20 years from now or 100 years from now resemble at all what what was in Woody Allen movies, uh, you know, which remains the kind of (laughs) stereotype of what therapy is uh, a couple of decades ago? Um, I think probably not. I think it's already changing. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that many, many years ago I had said that therapy should be divided into two parts. And so we have people who can say to you in a sophisticated way that I know how you feel and you'll be okay. But they're not the same people who necessarily can tell you 
how to get on with it, right. and what actually to do to be happy. Right. So they can get you from being unhappy to neutral in some sense. Okay. So what happens is now we have a new discipline of uh, coaches, and that's where they take off. And so, you know, I, many of the people who are seeing coaches would have been people who would have been in therapy in the past. Um, right, right. That's interesting. Yeah. yeah I mean, and, I'm sure and, that there will be many changes in the future. But uh, I mean, it seems like psychology, I mean, this is not my observation. I mean, it's behind a lot of, you know, like Richard Davidson's work, for example. I mean, that, that a lot of um, psychology and psychiatry was so focused on pathology um, you're also you're focusing on taking charge, of, yeah, no, and I'm making from the each very moment start. what you want it to be in a positive sense. Yeah, when I started doing research, the field was consumed with problems, right? And right from the start, uh, my research was about well-being. And interesting that um, it was too soft a word to talk about happiness. So I talked about well-being. I think that things are progressing in this way. Surely now we have um, a whole field of positive psychology. And I think that um, my last book, the counterclockwise book, the subtitle, The Psychology or the Power of Possibility, is still a little different. Instead of describing what is, even if we're describing it in a more positive way, that we create what we want it to be. And so, I, I want to say, I think it's really important, you know, when you say, you know, this sentence that you spoke just a moment ago about that we think about what is, instead of thinking about what is, what, oh, yes. it's what we want to be, what is possible. You know, we, we hear a lot of language like that now in kind of the self-help genre that can be thin. But you mm-hmm. say that as a scientist who's been yeah. actually seeing this actualized. Yeah. Again, back to uh, the study of language. Um, many years ago, I, I talked about the difference between can and how can. It seems so similar, but they're vastly different. When you ask yourself, how do you do something, you're bypassing your ego in some sense. You're just out there examining, fiddling with things, trying to find the solution. If you ask yourself, can you do it, then all you can appeal to is the past. And um, so with lots of things, when people say, um, you know, people can only do A, B, or C, the first thought in my mind is always, well, how do we know that? How could that be? I ask my students um, that, I say, how fast is it around the time of the Boston Marathon? Mm-hmm. And I'll say, how fast is it humanly possible to run? And they, they do some strange calculations because these are wonderful kids. They, mm-hmm. they come up with things like 28 miles, 20, you know, 32.5, mm-hmm. <laughs> who knows? Um, and then I, I tell them about the Taramora in uh, Copper Canyon in Mexico. And these are people who are, without stopping, running 100, 200 miles Mm. a day. Mm. I had this discussion with a friend of mine when we were both part of the medical school division on aging. And um, I called him one day and I said, how long would you say, he's a physician, it takes for a um, broken finger to heal? Um, And so he said, I'll say a week. I said, okay, if I said to you, I could heal it by psychological means in five days, what would you say? He said, all right. I said, what about four days? He said, okay. (laughs) I say, what about three days? He says, no. I said, okay, what about three days and 23 hours? Okay, the point being, when is that moment that on this side you can, on the other side you can't? I mean, it strikes me that that there are also really civic public life implications to this. Yes, um, yes. You know, and I was thinking about it. I mean, because if you think about the fact that in our public life, um, which is something I puzzle over a lot, we um, we tend to only ask the can we, right? The yes, no question. And then we argue the yes or the no. Mm-hmm. And we actually don't create a lot of possibility Right. Um, on really important subjects. Yes. 
Which is, it's, I yeah. mean, so I think you're putting think, that in a different context, which is really interesting to think about. Yeah, I think that uh, here's another one that will sound strange, but I'm against compromise. Yeah. What? Because <laughs> the compromise sounds so mindful. Okay, say some more. I like and the, it. Well, the reason for that is because it's an agreement for everybody to lose. It's just reducing your losses. Yeah. You know, rather than finding the win-win solution which is often out there. Well, it seems like we could talk about that for another hour. Um, we're coming close to the end. I, I, I want to ask you a final kind of big question. Um, uh, talking about becoming mindful is, is also really talking about becoming conscious and yeah. asking the question, how can we live well, is an existential question. It's a, it's a variation, you know, if you will. It's an evolution of, of this question that's been passed through human history. So... I just wonder how this work you do you know, makes you think differently about that big question of what it means to be human and what we may be learning about that that we haven't grasped before. Yeah, interesting. Um, well, I was going to write a mindful utopia um, at one point, and, and eventually maybe I will and, and give this sort of question real thought. But I think that most of the ills that people experience as individuals, as uh, in their relationships, in groups, in cultures, globally. And that's a, that's a very big statement. Yeah. Virtually all of the ills are a result of mindlessness, one way or the other, directly or indirectly. And so that as the culture becomes more mindful, I think all of these things will naturally change. You know, on the cultural level, people are fighting over limited resources, but resources are probably not nearly as limited as people mindlessly presume. People's egos are at stake even, you know, while they're negotiating um, on the level of countries. And uh, they're not looked at in that fashion and uh, approached in that way. That when you have people going to work feeling good about themselves and the work life is exciting for them, fun for them, nurturing for them, they're going to be doing more work and they're going to be less evaluative of other people. And once we all start feeling less evaluated, that allows us to to become more creative, mindful, take more risk because they're not very risky and uh, to be kinder in our views of other people. Hmm. Ultimately, I think that for me, what it means to be human is to feel unique, but to recognize that everybody else is also unique. And I think that people, right now, I think people feel that being happy, really happy in this in this deep way that I'm referring to, not that you've just won an award or bought mm. something new or whatever, um, that they think that this is something that one should experience sometimes. You know, maybe if you experience it a little more than other people, you're one of the lucky ones, where yeah. I think it should be the way you are all the time. And that, But, I mean, so, you, you know, you said a while ago, you know, most things are an inconvenience rather than a tragedy. There are tragedies. So, so what is this happiness? You know, how how does this well, way it's of being function yeah, in those yeah. moments? Um, let me uh, give you an example of something. Many years ago, I had a major fire that destroyed eighty percent of what I owned. And when I called the insurance company, and they came over the next day the person, the insurance agent, had said to me that this was the first call he had ever had where the damage was worse than the call. And, okay. you know, and I thought of it. I thought, well, yeah. gee, you know, it's already taken my stuff, whatever that means. Yeah. Why give it my soul? Mm. You know, that uh, why pay twice, which is what people so often do. Something mm. happens, mm. you have that loss, and then you're going to now throw all your emotional energy at it um, and so you're you're doubling up on uh, the negativity. Mm. And interesting, you know, to go back to how would you take a tragedy and make and and see it 
you know, because we can say the fire was not a, a simple little thing, uh, that I stayed in a hotel for a little while. I had two dogs with me, so I was a, a vision you know, as I walked <laughs> through the lobby every day uh, while my house was being rebuilt. And it was Christmas when this happened, a few days before uh, Christmas Eve. On Christmas Eve, I left my room. I come back many hours later, and the room was full of gifts, and it wasn't from the management. It wasn't from the, the owner of the hotel. It was the people who parked my car, the chambermaids, the mm. uh, waiters. Mm. Um, it, it was marvelous. Mm. It, you know, when you strip away all the, the mindless insecurity, people are quite something. Mm. And uh, you know, so I reflect on that. I couldn't tell you anything that I had lost in the fire. You know, but at this point, I have that memory that was more than positive. Mm. So sometimes the, you know, the ways that things unfold can take place, you know, over a longer time. Ellen Langer is a social psychologist and a professor in the psychology department at Harvard University. Her books include Mindfulness and Counterclockwise, Mindful Health and the Power of Possibility. Being is Trent Gillis, Chris Hegel, Lily Percy, Mariah Helgeson, Maya Tarrell, Marie Sambalay, Bethany Mann, Selena Carlson, Malka Fenevesi, Aaron Farrell, Jill Ganas, Loren Dordal, and Giselle Calderon. Our lovely theme music is provided and composed by Zoe Keating. And the last voice you hear singing our final credits in each show is hip hop artist Lizzo. On Being was created at American Public Media. Our funding partners include the John Templeton Foundation, supporting academic research and civil dialogue on the deepest and most perplexing questions facing humankind. Who are we? Why are we here? And where are we going? To learn more, visit templeton.org. The Fetzer Institute, helping to build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Find them at fetzer.org. Calliopeia Foundation, working to create a future where universal spiritual values form the foundation of how we care for our common home. The Henry Luce Foundation, in support of public theology reimagined. The Osprey Foundation, a catalyst for empowered, healthy, and fulfilled lives. And the Lilly Endowment, an Indianapolis-based private family foundation dedicated to its founders' interests in religion, community development, and education. On Being is distributed by PRX, the public radio exchange, and is a Krista Tippett public production. Ah.